Hey, Pinkers, welcome back to another episode of the Pink Bike Podcast. This one is number 71, and more importantly, it's the second part of our chat with one of cycling's most interesting people, Richard Cunningham, better known as RC in these circles. But before we kick this off, if you haven't listened to part one of our chat yet, press pause on this and pull up episode 67 right now. I'm going to be honest with you, though, RC and I don't even talk about bikes until the very end of that podcast. But there are some pretty crazy stories in there. RC tells us how he flew a plane solo before taking a lesson, building his own planes, his father working for NASA, building the lunar landing, landing gear, all sorts of wild stories. And we even get to some wheels near the end with motorbikes, the early days of mountain biking in California, and RC's own brand, Mantis Bicycles. RC, Thanks so much for doing this. I'm not sure we're going to be able to fit the rest of your story in just one more episode. So we're going to get rolling, but it might be, we might have to do episode three and four, eh? (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) That might be too much. I think there's a lot of people out there hoping for exactly that. (laughs) So as always, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of RC's wild stories or the Pick Bike team arguing about bikes or something for an hour every week. And one last thing before we start, you guys posted some questions for RC under the last one of these that we did. So I'm going to ask him those at the end of this episode. So make sure to stick around for that. Maybe we've got your question to answer. All right, RC, the last time we talked, you told me all about growing up in a big family and flying planes and a moon lander and mountain biking. And we ended with a phone call from a man named Jody Weisel at Mountain Bike Action Asking if you knew anyone who might be a good editor for the magazine because Zapata Espinosa was leaving. So I think you gave him a few names, including your own, even though you didn't consider that at first. Why did you end up putting yourself on the list of possible editors for Mountain Bike Actions? And do you think that was one of the most formative decisions of your life? <laughs> well, here I am. <laughs> well, I, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> how difficult that would be. But so I had I'd been a yeah. pretty successful, you know, my it took a while to get my bike company going, but that that started to do well and and uh I had got to the point where I was making money and I was a designer. I'd been designing bicycles for Nishiki and Raleigh uh, at the time and you know the aliens, the elevated stays and all that stuff and and I had brought the full suspension cross country bike Help bring that into fruition with the pro floater, and I real—I was thinking, you know, gosh, I'm going to have to, you know, get big. I'm going to have to run a real business now and hire engineers and somebody else to design bicycles and farm out special hardware. And it was a big deal. And I, and I didn't think that the small frame builders like myself, that were you know pioneers and, and had a lot of influence when we were building all this stuff, would be able to hang with the likes of Specialized and GT, as they started to use their um, their uh, manufacturing numbers and, and, and efficiencies to, to solve all those problems and use their gigantic sales and stuff to cover all the expenses that I thought, gosh, am I going to be a good businessman? Because I wasn't a very good businessman to get here. And so I thought maybe I should be looking for, <laughs> for my next it's step. It's important that you knew that, though, isn't it? It is, because... You know, like Bob Haro said, you know, when he, he is the father of of, of street style freeride BMX, and and he's doing really well with his business. And he and he told me, you know, Richard, I knew I wasn't going to be able to 
run a business. I was like really creative and I could see what was in the future. But so I hired Bob Ford and he's the guy that made me rich, <laughs> not me. <laughs> so I, I didn't have a Bob Ford in my future. And so I'd been talking about it with my wife at the time, like, gosh, you know, what am I going to do next? And, you know, when these guys put me out of business, well, it turned out they didn't put me out of business. They all decided they wanted to be custom frame builders too. So all the big manufacturers, you know, wasted all their time and money making the high-end bikes and trying to be these super, like, Ferrari-type people. And they forgot that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have real jobs and they probably should have used their their uh, economies of scale to make the top-end bikes available at mid-range and low-end prices. But that wouldn't come for a long time. And, in fact, they bumbled through suspension for a long time. If I had stayed with with mountain bikes, I probably could have been, you know, a mini Santa Cruz or something like that. But that was my choice. So here we are. I'm working. I'm making lots of money. I'm getting contracts just to be alive and answer questions. And I'm getting royalties and stuff. And I'm, you know, fat, but not quite happy, you know. And I get this call. And, and I've got to tell you, I've been writing for Mountain Bike Action secretly or not so secretly for a few years now, they'd been using me as a as kind of a consultant. Hey, what about this bike? And hey, what about this geometry? And and I'd been working with Jody and Zapata for for a few years. And I would write my articles on uh, yellow lined paper, and they would uh, they would have somebody type them out and call me up and ask for a few you know edits here and there. And and that's how it was. So I had some I had some skin in the game, but it was you know rough skin. <laughs> So anyway, yeah. I got two phone calls out of the blue. One was from Zapata Espinosa. And Zapata Espinosa learned almost all of his journalism and how to make magazines and stuff from Jody Weisel, who is a phenomenally brilliant man. Jody Weisel, if you don't know him, uh, is the editor of Motocross Action, but he also uh, has been the man behind the scenes on almost all of High Torque Publications, uh, Dirt Bike, Mountain Bike Action, Road Bike Action when it started. He's the mentor of that group and turned out later on to be my mentor. But anyway, Zapata said, hey, I've got something I want to talk to you about and I might be breaking a, some secrets here, so I'm going to gloss over it a little bit. But basically he told me, you know, Jody's been like my editorial father. He's taught me everything I know and I, and I have a huge amount of um, loyalty to him and he was the editor of mountain bike action at the time and mountain bike action had already grown to prominence at this point as the voice of off-road cycling and he said um i got an offer that i can't refuse and it was from uh the lead bicycling magazine they came over to buy mountain bike action and the publisher told him to go to hell well actually he didn't say that because he doesn't cuss but it was similar. And so they were stuck. They were on the West Coast, and they said, well, if we can't get mountain bike action, why don't we get SAP? So they said, you tell us what you want, and we'll say yes. What he really wanted is to stay home more with his family. He just had a daughter, and it was a life transformation like daughters and sons are. And he, and he said, I'd like to work at home, and, and I'd like to make X amount of money, and I'd like to travel not so much, you know, I could, I'd like to be in control of my travel, things that you, that it, an editor in that type, in this type of situation 
don't get to choose. I mean, we go where we're told. We have to be where the stories break. We aren't home when we want to be home. We don't have holidays. It's a really fun job, but our holidays are work holidays. (laughs) So they said yes. Yeah. (laughs) And he he was really broken up, like, about the loyalty aspect of, you know, working under somebody and being supported and... And and I said you'll be all right, you know. We, you got to know who is Zap, you know, where Zap ends and where Jody ends in your in your life. And it's one of those trans transitions that everybody should make once in their life. So he went. Well, that was my secret at the time. The next day, I get a call from Jody, and he's like, "Hey, Richard, he's got a funny voice," and he goes, "Um." Zap's leaving. Uh, could you give me some ideas of um, who's gonna, who could take his place? You know, five people, maybe three people from the industry. And I go, sure. I got some names. So I said, give me a couple minutes, you know, an hour or so, and I'll get back to you. So I told my wife at Simon, she says, uh, why don't you put your name on that list? And I thought, really? And she says, yeah, you've been, you know, circling the drain, looking for some new challenge, and why don't you throw your name on a list? And the next day, I was being interviewed. Smart woman, RC. Yeah. The very next day, I was. I drove up like a hundred miles to some horrible place in LA with there's bullet holes in the windows from drive-by shootings, <laughs> where High Torque Publications was, and I was getting interviewed, and I and I had a job. And part of the this is crazy. So part of the deal was we can't have any conflicts of interest. So if you take this job. You have to sell your company and divest yourself of your royalties and your, you know, everything. So that was a big chunk. At this particular time, that was... No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. But it seemed like the right thing to do because I, one of the reasons I, I... One of the things I really loved about being a pioneer frame builder was that we could try crazy stuff. We could actually drive the industry with ideas and and uh, opinions and stuff, because nobody at the time knew what a mountain bike should be except for the people that were riding them. It threw the entire industry upside down. That's why, you know, the likes of Schwinn and, you know, half a dozen, all the good road names and stuff, even Trek, fell behind. And suddenly Diamondback, like, who the hell even heard about Diamondback, right? And GT's back in the mountain bike business after... Tanking, I mean, when BMX tanked, it turned the, it made heroes out of companies that nobody even knew about, like Nishiki. Who would, who even knew that Nishiki would make a bike? But for a brief time, they were, their flame was bright, you know? And so here we are, the little guys are kind of driving it. And, you know, I did a whole bunch of land access stuff too. But here's a chance, you know, the small frame builders are getting less and less important. And maybe it was a chance instead of to be a, a guy on the ground, you know, the the gorilla, the gorilla warfare guy, to be more of an elder, and kind of look at the in, you know maybe steer the industry or influence the industry in a broader, softer sense. And I thought, well, that's a good reason to try something new. Mm-hmm. And so I said yes. I had the job, and I had to sell my company, tell every tell all my contacts and stuff that I wasn't going to take their their money every month and I got a regular paying job with benefits and all that stuff 
and I didn't know anything about it. Nothing. I knew, didn't know how to type. I could type a page an hour when I was in, in community college, <laughs> trying to be somebody else. A page an hour was the best I could do. That's about where I'm at right now, RC. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know anything about, about word processing. I didn't know how to make magazines or anything. But fortunately, Jody said he would just, he says, we don't, he goes, we don't need somebody that knows how to make magazines. We need somebody that knows about mountain bikes. <laughs> so we can, we can teach you that. So Jody lived closer to the motorcycle tracks and stuff in Norco, by the way, where that large explosion happened, almost three miles away from it. And I lived in, in Orange County, so we were, we were like 80 miles away from work. So I would meet him at zero dark 30, and we would drive in traffic to work, which is all the way across L.A., and he would teach me about magazines and tell me what this and that that was. Wow. And I wrote my stories on while I was learning how to type and use computers and stuff. I wrote them on paper. And my employees, my... I just want to ask, you described Jody as being a turning point that made this career possible. Those are some pretty, those are some pretty heavy, heavy words. Can you, can you maybe expand on that a bit? Well, Jody's... Jody grew up in kind of with a military father. And so he has that military consciousness where he will support you. He has your back, but he won't have your back if you don't put out 100% effort. And so it, he was a harsh teacher, but he had the whole plan. He said, you know, he, he had the magazine creation process broken down into into actual equations and he it was really it was a completely different thing for me to learn from him the way that he taught it was you don't have to write a lot if you know how many pages you're going to do you know how many photographs you're going to do then you only have to write what's left and he said you can manipulate it either way big photos less mm -hmm. less typing and then he he basically had the psychology of it mm -hmm. everything and so basically, this is the first time where I was at the bottom of the ladder, where I knew nothing, and I had to learn everything step by step. And to have this, you know, this unbelievably smart guy, I mean, you'd, you'd walk into, a, we had these meetings where we had to come up with uh, story ideas. And, you know, everybody, it's like a rock and roll bands, you know, they're stupid idiots that play in their garage and they practice 10 songs for like 20 years and they finally get a contract and then they get an album and of course everything's practiced it's like they're just they've done tours they play these songs they know all the moves they know how to you know rotate their their hips on stage and then they have to make their next album and it's like uh yep uh um best of <laughs> So when you have to come up with new ideas every month, <laughs> you sit in these meetings and you're like, well, what are we, how are we going to do? And, and Jody will come like, Jody would come up with like 16 ideas. Like, well, we'll do the, the five best downhillers of all time. And then we'll follow that with three ideas that change the derailleur. And you just go on and come up with like 25 ideas. And we're like, you know, what about uh, Tomac, John Tomac interview? He tells all. And they're like, ah, we already did that. You know, it's like. <laughs> so anyway, he was brilliant, creative, and he yeah. had all of the, the science behind him as well. But I didn't know that. 
all I knew was that I was going to be the editor of a magazine. And I was the boss. And all of my all of my assistant editors knew more about magazines than I did, and it was just amazing that they rallied behind me, and and uh, helped me succeed. It took, I think, two years before we actually greased a deadline, and uh, <laughs> I uh, we went to Magic Mountain. <laughs> we we finished ahead of time. We clean the office, and I says, okay, if we get enough of those Dr. Pepper cans that have the free entrance to Magic Mountain, we can all go to Magic Mountain for free. And it was right across the freeway. So I took the entire, we just screwed off for half a day, except for one guy. He was a bit of a sourpuss. So the, the boss, the, the, the uh, Roland Hines is like this dour um, leader. He's he's a negative uh, negative leader. Everything's bad. Nothing's good. You, you have to do a little bit better, otherwise we're going to go out of business while he's just, you know, pulling in thousands of dollars. I mean, at this time, a salesman thought it was a hard work because they had to tell people that there was no more advertising space in mountain bike action, and maybe they could fit him in next month. That's what they thought was hard work. Okay, so we go to Magic Mountain, and Roland comes with his little sweater that he always wore and his little shorts and his knobby knees and he looks in and he goes he goes where is everybody and ed's over there and he goes they're at magic mountain i don't know why they left (laughs) (laughs) so two of the people two of my employees Two of my employees were his son and his daughter, so we were in a lot of trouble. So while we were riding roller coasters and having a great time, we come back, and it is just, it, it's like, you know, he's sitting in his in his chair. He wants to talk to everybody. He's like the Pope, and we're going to confession. And uh, his kids threw down for me. They they argued that, hey, man, this is, this is how we do it. So it, it turned out I won, and... But the, the cost I had to pay for later. <laughs> so for those not from North America, mountain bike action was a staple for many mountain bikers in the 90s, into the 2000s, and still to this day. But back then, it was a thick, glossy magazine full of the latest gear being tested. That was the focus. It was definitely a gear-focused magazine. It still is. I want to say, RC, that it, it must have had the largest circulation of any North American mountain bike magazine, I would imagine. Um, but what was it like working for one of the most important magazines in the heyday of print when these things were thick and glossy? They were almost book-like. Uh, it, was, it was exciting. I mean, it was, it was like Pink Bike was when I first started at Pink Bike. There were no rules. You had to get the magazine done, of course. And it, it's, it was kind of cool. It was like you did a all your work riding and stuff in two weeks. You went crazy riding for about a week and a half, and then you spent the rest of the time organizing the magazine. And then there was the space where you didn't have to do anything, which never happens on when you're working online because online is and nobody sleeps. It's worldwide. People are complaining about your what you wrote 24-7, and you're always looking like, oh, no. Oh God, what's Wacky going to say today? You know, <laughs> but this you had a space. That's accurate, and you had armor. <laughs> That's a hundred percent it. <laughs> you have armor when you do a print magazine because they don't come out for a mm-hmm. month, and then if somebody hates you and they write you a letter, which you have to print because you have yeah. to print hate letters that they they sell really well, 
<laughs> they don't, nobody gets to comment. Nobody sees the, the hate yeah. letters for another month. So you have this two month window where nobody can yell at you except for advertisers. They can yell at you all the time. But what I'd like to say about, about let's go back to the beginning. People ask me, well, how do you do something that you don't know anything about? And, you know, you have to fake it till you make it. Yes. But, but what really inspired me was a guy named Jay McKinnon who owned a, a bike shop called The Bike Beat, which is pivotal. It was like the pivotal mountain bike place in um, Norwich County. And he was also a drummer and he had a punk band. And my, uh, at Mantis, my um, shop manager, Eddie Ray, was the bass player for his punk band. And I, I played the guitar as well, but I had not picked up one up in a long, 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 long time. And I sucked back then. So one day I was working late at night and I was welding frames, which I've said before, I, I did my welding in the evenings when nobody was around and I could just turn on the radio, let Hendrix blast while I was TIG welding. And, and he, he knocked on the door and he comes in and he goes, hey, I don't know why I did this but I think you need this. And he handed me a 1960s Telecaster, Fender Telecaster guitar that he had just completely restored and walked out. And it was like, what the fuck, you know? What just happened? You could tell that this was a pivotal moment in my life, just like the call I got from Mountain Bike Action. But the reason this thing has some... The reason that I'm telling the story is because when I started playing the guitar, it was so I was so bad at it. I'd forgotten so much, and I I was like, "Oh my god!" It, and I because he gave it to me, I figured I had to learn. So I went to the store and I bought Ernie Ball's "How to Play the Guitar" just to remind me what all the, where all the notes were and stuff. And I just played it and practiced, and it was just horrible. My fingers weren't going in the right place, and finally it started to go and. And later on, Eddie, just for fun, invited me to, to, to play a couple songs for his, with their punk band at a local club. And I stepped in with my, like, short hair and my, like, you know, <laughs> stiff as a board. <laughs> and I played a couple songs over at, at the Doll Hut. Yeah. And, and it was like, wow, I, I think I can do this. So, but it, I had to, like, suck for a long time to do it. And so... Shortly afterwards, like a year later, I got this call, and I, and I thought, I know nothing about this, but it can't be any harder than playing the guitar again. And that, that little thing that Jay did gave me the courage to learn something from, from scratch. And so I just put my mind to it, and every day I just did as I'd fall asleep at the computer, and there'd only be like two screens full of type and and I just worked really hard at it and got a little bit better and a little bit better. And like I said, yeah. two years later, we went to Magic Mountain. And, and so so working with that crew, they they absolutely stood behind me. These these three people worked so hard to make to make it work. And Jody was the same way. He wouldn't do my work. But if I had to work late, he would stay at high torque. I'd be the only person in the office finishing my stories, editing stuff, and he would just sit there and wait. And if I had a question, he'd answer it. If I needed, like, how to write this caption or whatever, he would be there till like, 9 o'clock at night, and then we'd drive home. As long as I was working, he would not let me fail. 
and that was in, that was something I I had an experience. I mean, as always, when I did the building bikes and stuff like that, I was the one that had to, you know, be the fallback person. And to have somebody have my back was amazing. Catherine, uh, Roland Hines's uh, younger daughter would would run up and say, "Hey, what about this?" And I'd say. I'd ask her to do impossible stuff like get somebody on the phone after hours and find out this and find out that. And one day she made a comment. She says, this is what Richard does. He says, could you please call Saturn and ask them to get in touch with the moon and send me the specifications for this bicycle on Sunday? And she would start laughing. <laughs> but th they would do that for me. And so really... <laughs> What it, what it turned out to be was this, yeah. like, it was like the pirate rules. We did everything wrong. We had everybody in the entire high torque. They knew that we were just like, the mountain bike action was like chaos, but, but kind of an organized chaos. But it was such a tight group that we made it happen every single month. We, we missed our editorial deadlines, but we never missed a print deadline, which was death for the magazines. When they roll, yeah. when they make magazines, the printers are run the printing, printing presses 24-7. And they give you a four or five hour block to, to make all your magazines. And the press is just, literally, they just throw magazines out one end and paper comes in the other end. But if you miss that deadline, you have to pay for the press time no matter what. And... Uh, so that was something we never did. So we never missed a press deadline. And uh, and we had, it was like a pirate ship. It was really fun. When we went out on our, on our uh, to, to um, <laughs> visit Shimano's latest launch or somebody's launch, because we were such, so loose with what we said and what we did, we were like, there they are. There's mountain bike action. We hate those guys. And of course, that was me, and I didn't know why they hated me until later on. I realized See, that sounds like Pink Bike not too long ago. Yes, that's why I loved it so much. It was my second chance <laughs> to be on a pirate ship, yeah, sail the seas and and aim our cannons at at bicycles that don't have water bottles <laughs> and head angles that were wrong. Yes, so yes, fun. and lockout levers. <laughs> RC, I don't, I don't want to get to pink bike yet though. I want to, I want to stick with mountain bike action because one thing that mountain bike action has never done are bylines and the way that you speak about the team back then, it sounds very team orientated and uh, like a supportive atmosphere. How important do you think it was to not have bylines? Is that a factor in anything? Oh, that was, that was a call from, uh, Roland, the, the publisher, he didn't want people to become important because once people become important, they become valuable to someone else. And he didn't want people hiring their, their junior editors and turning them into senior editors that would be competition. So he forbade bylines. The only bylines you got were people that, that were contributors or the actual uh, chief editors because he, because he didn't want competition. And it was is a shame too because some of the some of the writers there were were fantastic. I mean, Catherine did all the hard work. She did all the medical stuff, and she did she did the the, the worst work in editorial is when you do uh, buyers guys where you have to call up a thousand manufacturers and find out 
what the prices are and what their latest things are, and nobody ever calls you back. Uh, well, until I told her that you just state the wrong price and send them a note that says, hey, is this the right price? Or Right. And then they, when they know it's wrong, they call you back in two seconds. So we use that all the time. <laughs> RC, don't tell people our tricks. <laughs> <laughs> What's the price on your new specialized enduro? Oh, we're still working on that. It's like, well, it's going to print and it's going to be... $3,455. It's like, no, that's totally wrong. It's $7,679. And like, well, thank you. Bye. <laughs> or see, I think back to those magazines in the 90s and the 2000s, and there were some pretty legendary bikes that come to mind that you may have tested. I hope that you tested. Um, things like the Amp B3, the Foes LTS with the Fox Alps shock, that early shock, your Mantis Pro Floater, all sorts of stuff. Are there any bikes that you think back to those days and you're like, wow, that thing was wild or I don't know how I'm still alive, anything like yeah, that? I had to test. <laughs> it was like the best and the worst. The average bike in the early days was what we call the classic Norba geometry. It was the... 73 degree seat angle, 71 degree head angle, 23 inch top tube, medium size, what, 17 inch chain stays. Every effing hardtail that came through was exactly the same. And you can imagine writing about that. It's like just basically write the same story and then <laughs> put fluff paragraphs in between the, the same information. It was extremely boring. But the suspension bikes, back then were just all over the place. You know, there was, there was uh, uh, Bob Gerben's flex stem with a marshmallow rear suspension. There was the Allenax bike. I mean, not Allenax. The, the um, what was the name of that? The one with the gigantic beam. Was it Proflex? The one with the gigantic beam that just, that the, they actually raced. They had a team at the World Cups. And these poor German racers would be, coming down the hills through the braking bumps and these little flexible beams would be spanking their butts with a saddle just pop, 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 pop. But anyway, I, I tested those. Oh, a soft, soft ride, ride. RC. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry, I had a little brain fade there. Yes. It's a soft ride. What can you tell what what's a soft ride like to ride off road? Oh, it was it was horrible. Because basically you, it's this it's this giant it looks like uh, somebody took a worm that existed in prehistoric times and then recreated it with fiberglass and then attached it to right behind the head tube and clamped it onto the top tube of a bike. So basically the saddle stuck out of the end of this long S-curve spring and you had to kind of adjust it so that when you sat on it, it kind of floated around at your ride height. Now the whole idea was that whatever bump you hit with a rear wheel would be suspended you know just be like floating around which was true it just floated you couldn't even feel the rear wheel but when you're out of the saddle like which pretty much the entire descent the preload on this thing would unload and the your butt would still be on the saddle so as you started banging down the hills on this bicycle that handled worse than anything i could possibly imagine the seat would be spanking your butt just pop, 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 and pushing you 
over the front of the bars, which, you know, 130 millimeter stem and 71 degree head angle and a short top tube, you're already over the bars. You don't need any encouragement. And this is like, go over the bars, please go over the bars, please, please, you know? So that was like hell. So I got the, I got uh, Proflex and, um, and K2 mixed up. And I thought I was talking to the K2 people, or maybe it was Gervin, but I got them mixed up. And they called me one day and says, hey, how's the test going on our bike? And I really love this particular Gervin. They got rid of the flex stem and had a real fork, and it actually handled good. And I said, oh, man, I am enjoying this bike. It's really cool. I said, they said, how's it handle? I said, oh, man, it's good in the turns, and it's, it's good down the, you know, through the rough stuff. And I thought I was talking, I was the wrong person. They said, oh, man, the corporate's going to love this. <laughs> so they booked ads and <laughs> based on my, <laughs> based on my oh, glowing review. they didn't love it, RC. <laughs> and, and of course, I just, I put a torpedo in their boat in the article <laughs> and sunk them. And anyway, I paid, I paid yeah. a price for that. So yeah, keep your mouth shut about anything that has to do with the review until the review's out. Lesson one. <laughs> but that was a bad one. The good one was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, believe it or not, uh, this was like like a revelation because it had the right head angle. This was a 69-degree head angle bike when everybody else was around 71. It's slingshot. Okay, no down tube, just a cable. Oh. And a, and a flexible connection at the seat tube. And it had a rigid yep. fork, no suspension fork. And it was amazing. I thought this was going to be the worst bike I ever rode. Why? Why do you think it was amazing? It, it covered. It, it cornered well. It actually got through the bumps pretty well. It was. It was. A, it was truly cool. And part of it was that it had a pretty kicked out head angle, which it needed because it didn't have a down tube. So when you're under braking or you're hitting bumps or dropping into potholes, it had to roll through them. So with a steep head angle, it wouldn't. And it was. I remember going down a fire road descent with switchbacks faster than I've ever gone in my life on any other bike. And I thought, whoa, maybe bicycles don't have to look like bicycles, you know? It was it was a one of the one of the amazing bikes I've ridden. If it if that if the slingshot didn't have a suspension fork and those bikes they hinged at the top tube and seat tube junction, in other words, the slingshot would get slacker when you sit on it and when it's hitting impacts and things like that, correct? Correct. Even slacker. Even slacker. So when you were geeing out in a corner, it would actually yeah. get longer for a, for a moment, which is counterintuitive because motocross bikes, in, yeah. you know, in, in, at the Supercross, they count on the fact that the steering is going to get steeper when they go into the turns. They get around them really fast. Yeah, but if the bikes are all too short to begin with back in 1993, it's probably good if it gets a little longer. Absolutely. That was, that's what I should have taken away from it because I was still yeah. thinking that 70 degree head angle was a little slack, you know. And when I, when I rode that bike, though, yeah. big difference. It was like, okay, that's, that's the game changer there. What's, yeah. what's good about this bike that I should remember? I bet you had some wild component failures back then, too, didn't you? Every I, I remember hearing a story about you shoving a stick in a down tube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that actually wasn't my idea. I'd seen it done in Crested Butte, but I never thought I'd have to do it. 
and basically it was uh, uh, when the people are starting to make steel bikes thinner. And everybody thinks steel is real, and that's that's cool. But when steel starts, because steel is so strong, you don't need much of it, and because there isn't much of it, when you get a crack, you don't have much time before you're gonna it's gonna fall apart, and you don't notice them right away. They don't creak very much, and this one just boom hit a bump, and the the down tube separated from the head tube about six inches and I was way away from nowhere. I don't remember what bike is. I think it might it may have been a diamondback, but I don't remember the the brand at the time. But it was when everybody was experience was experimenting with really thinly butted tubes, uh, pushed by what the Japanese company uh Tongay, who started heat treating them so they could make them thinner and lighter, pretty much revolutionized the steel frame for about an hour before aluminum. But back to this. So where I was stuck but I always carried a huge toolkit because everything broke. So I had string, I had tape, I had zip ties, and I pulled it out. And so I looked for a stick that was just about the size of the down tube that would fit in there. And I spread it out really far and I just crammed it in, just pounded the front wheel and the, the fork until the, the stick went in. And then I used the front of the water bottle with a, as, a, as a tie off. And I went around the top tube as many times as I could and just tightened it up. And I rode it the rest of the time. It was probably a good, it was a probably 20-mile ride. So about half of that, 10 miles. You know, no no way to baby it. I mean, we're descending as well. It ran the whole time. Yeah. RC, if, if you could go back and ride one of those bikes from back then, just to maybe reacquaint yourself with it, or, or maybe you believe it was an important bike from back then. Is there, is there one bike that you would choose? I'm putting you on the spot here. Oh, gosh. When I look back at all the bikes that, were, that stood out, um, that would be, you know, that I'd keep. One of them was a Fat Chance. And once again, it was Fat Chance, Chris Chance, believe that a super slack head angle was a better idea than the steeper ones that everybody wanted. And so he had a 69 degree head angle, but when you put a suspension fork on it, it would kick it out a little bit more. But anyway, when I rode that bike, I realized that my idea when I was a bike builder was that you'd want to keep the bike as a really lithe climber and then figure out the top tubes and, and the rest of the geometry so that it would descend okay. Nowadays, we realize that was a mistake. It was exactly the opposite. He wanted a bike that you could climb on. Whoops. And when you turn it around the other way, <laughs> maybe you could have yeah. some fun. But the, <laughs> the idea was you spent so many hours climbing that you should make that, that, make that a little bit better. And we, right now, the, we're living in a different yeah. world. It's a manufactured sport now. Our, our trails have berms. Everything's curated for mountain bikes to make it fun for mountain bikes. We were riding on existing trails. So we had to have a bike that you could get the climbing over with and still get home before dark because it was an adventure sport then. Now it's an excitement sport. The adventure sport part of it has been erased. It's a good way to put it. And so if you think about bicycles back then, it was how far could we go? Can we get to that to that uh, World War II crash site? Could we get to the hot springs or whatever? It was a different world. But 
But that was a game changer for me. It handled better than any bike, any hardtail that I ever made. And I thought Chris Chance was an East Coast guy and they didn't know what they were talking about. Another one was back to Bob Gervin. Bob Gervin, the guy that invented ProFlex, he was a, a car racer a, and, he, and a really smart uh, chassis builder, car racer guy. And he understood all that anti-squat and, you know, what they call that anti-rise and blah, blah, blah. blah. He, he understood that. And he, and he just figured out a simple deal. He said, if I put the hinge point in the swing arm uh, right at the top of the chain ring, or at least the middle chain ring, where most of the people are, it'll neutralize the, mm-hmm. the rear suspension and give you enough uh, anti-squat so that you can pedal it well. And I didn't know that he had patented that. When I, when I did my first pro floater, uh, my first suspension bike, I was thinking of the same thing. How can I get this, neutralize the, the torque so I'm not rising, in the, the suspension isn't rising when I'm pedaling, but it isn't, and it isn't sagging. And I came up with that, and uh, it, it, it was actually just the right spot. And uh, about six months after Bob Gervin saw my, my uh, pro floater and mountain bike action, he called me up and said he was going to sue me. And I said, well, I didn't know that was true, but I don't think I'm going to be a problem for you because I'm only making 500 bikes a month. I mean, a year, 500 suspension bikes a year. And, and yeah. so I'm not going to be a problem for you. And he said, so he said, you know, I'll just let it lie. He just gave me a hall pass on it. But riding his bike, it was the first production bike I rode that, that really made sense. It felt good. And, and I thought, wow, this rear suspension thing might actually come because you know you talk about mountain bike action one of the things that mountain bike action you could attribute you could attribute to mountain bike action is we pushed the concept of rear suspension as a cross-country solution before the industry and most of the uh, riders believed that was going to happen and we just kept hammering on that because the editor that would be this guy had already gone through all that learning curve and <laughs> knew about it. But the, so we, we believed in it and we pushed it. And eventually it caught on. And I that's the apology that I have to make to the buying public. Because in order to do that, we had to say nice things about bicycles that were truly piles of shit. It took a while for the industry to be to make that hinge work. In hindsight, in yeah. hindsight, and for shock makers to make shocks that didn't leak, and for fork makers too. I mean, rock shocks, bless their souls, they just made leakers for so many years because as they were solving the seal problems, we were riding them harder and harder, and they didn't catch up for a long time. It took Fox and Marzocchi to build forks that could handle the pounding and part of that was that they were talking to racers and racers wanted everything light and we didn't care we just wanted them to last but anyway yeah that that suspension bike and later on intense actually made a suspension bike that i believe is still among my friends it, it was their first tracer i believe it was only a hundred mil bike but it handled extremely well, and the suspension was just right, and it was one of those magic bikes. Um, the, the my favorite bike from back then, you mentioned it was a B three. The horse lightener, yes. 
Very important. Horse Lightner, I think, gets the credit for truly cross-country, lightweight, dual-suspension bikes. And it was because he came from outside. He's a motorcycle designer. He liked riding mountain bikes because it helped him keep fit for his Saturday races at Glen Helen. And he was such an inquisitive man. I, I liked him. I, he, I consider him a friend. He's such an inquisitive man. And he looked at me and he says, the way to make things light, Richard, is to start with the lightest possible bike and break it all the time and keep fixing the little tiny things until it doesn't break anymore. If you start like the bicycle industry and make it so heavy that it, that it doesn't break and then you try to make it light, it becomes a 50-pound monster that you can never get there. So his bikes were stupid light. And when he finally... But to be, to be fair, RC, they were not reliable, no, were they? they were they weren't reliable. But he had to invent everything. He, he made a, a suspension fork. He needed disc brakes in order to do the suspension fork. So he, he made his own disc brakes. And then he made his own shocks because nobody could make a lightweight shock at the time that, was, that didn't leak after an hour. And so he, he built the entire thing. So basically... It wasn't the most optimal, you know, his, his design wasn't the most optimal. But if you look at suspension bikes now, you know, his, he ended up with a rocker, uh, super low front triangle with a tall seat tube with a little brace there. It's the, everything that he made, except for his linkage fork, mm-hmm. is duplicated today. And but it was so light. I mean, a 22-pound cross-country bike with 100 mils or 80 mils of suspension pretty fun to ride back there you know so that was one of my favorites and i and i he i had a b4 beautiful simple svelte looking yes bikes too i had a b4 that i took uh, that i that i rode for years only because i could fold it up and put it in one of those little suitcases that he made and take it out on the airplanes without having to pay that 75 or 125 dollar deal and actually, it was the first bike I took to the North Shore. The first time I rode in, in Fromm and all that was on a B4. And uh, it was... What year? It had you? to be um, 90, probably 95, 96. Allison Sidor was when she was winning races for, Canada, for Volvo Cannondale. She was with me. Um, Dangerous Dan was with me. Uh, let me see. There's, it was a half a dozen, half a dozen North Shore locals, and Allison Sidor came along, and 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 I had the only suspension bike. And Dangerous Dan says, "You got to get a hardtail, dude, and you got to get rid of those st- clip-in pedals. Your flats are the only way to go." He was wearing like the same boots he used to to do trail work with, you know, these giant like crusher boots, and and all those guys did was take me from one boulder to jump to huck to another, and in between all the little stunts and stuff and i crashed over and over elodie brown was there too um anyway i crashed over and over and over again we were there for an entire day and then allison at the end she says hey where's your hotel and i told her i was staying in some stupid bed and breakfast and she goes i'll take you on my favorite trails we i rode all the way until it was dark allison was was launching jumps off of cul-de-sacs in town and stuff I can't remember crashing so many times, but they told me that nobody rides suspension bikes on the shore and that I was an idiot. And then two years later when I came back, 
I had a cross-country bike with upright bars and, you know, short stem and stuff. And everyone was on downhill bikes. <laughs> so I was outclassed again. <laughs> You're still behind. <laughs> Do you remember your first ride on RockShox's RS1 fork? Can you, can you tell me about that fork? Yes, I can tell you a lot about it. Uh, I, I was given one. I think I had number... It was, it was a low number. It was under 100. But I wrote it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is it. You know, it's, you know, rear suspension is cool, but front suspension is what transformed mountain bikes. You know, and it was just, and it was, what, 80? Yeah. So you knew oh, right yeah, away. It was instant. I, I started designing forks, suspension forks, looking at what, how I can make a cheap one. Because, you know, they were, yeah. Really? I, I thought, wow, you know. First I thought... Because Manitou came out shortly after Rock Shocks, and Manitou was the uh, elastomer marshmallow idea because they don't leak. And Rock Shocks was, you know, Paul Turner and, and Steve Simon. They were they were motorcycle guys, so Rock Shocks was air and hydraulics, right? And you know, you could yeah. you could tell the air and hydraulics are going to win. They always do, but until they stopped leaking. I mean, if Rock Shocks fork would be good until it wasn't. But to, to rebuild them was easy. You just <laughs> took the circlip out of the top, hit, hit the stanchion tube with a hammer, and the seal popped out, and the whole fork came apart. So you could rebuild one in an hour. And <laughs> the damping, the, good the old days. Was, a, was a spring-loaded <laughs> ball. Yeah. <laughs> There's a ball in there with a hole, and, this, and the yeah. ball would keep the oil from going through the big hole for rebound. And then when you hit a big bump, it would go through, the, the, the ball would come off, and that was it. So we basically... Um, Just a super simple tech that's valve. It. That's all it was. And uh, it, I, remember yeah. it, I remember at Mammoth, when uh, RockShox first started out with the RS1, they wanted um, all the pros, you know, they, they wanted to ride them, but that wasn't really true. Uh, I think the downhillers were saying, you know, for some courses, they would be really good. You know, for the really steep courses, but for the for the yeah. for the downhill yeah. courses with pedaling on them, I probably wouldn't use it. <laughs> and I remember Alexi Graywall. Very different times. So Alexi Graywall was at Mammoth, and it was an important race. Maybe it was a Grundy Cup or something like that. He was like bad mouth and everybody using forks because they would hurt their performance. And then he got beat, and he was at Rock Shocks yelling at him to, to get one, and they just didn't have them. They would break, the seals would blow or something like that yeah. every race. And you could tell where the Rock Shocks pits were in the early days because you could smell them. The poor hotel rooms that, <laughs> and the condos that they were at probably never, <laughs> never recovered. You could walk and you could smell the hydraulic, I mean, the, the flu, hydraulic fluid like before you got there. That's how many forks they were rebuilding during the races. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was a game changer immediately. Yeah. And I think from then on, I, I, you know, I tried to I tried to have a suspension fork on, on every bike I rode. But, you know, they were few and far between in the early days. Do you think that you knew you were in the golden age of magazines when you were there? Do you, do you realize did you realize it? Do you think looking oh, back? Yeah. My my interview when I after my interview the we I, we met with all of the ad guys and all the editors and they all because I was a I was famous in a small world I like a 
the well, children of a lesser God. <laughs> you know, if you think about cycling, yeah. <laughs> as cool as we think we are, we're still, uh, we're, we're, not. <laughs> we're uh, let's say, I was going to say something that was that could be considered racial. What we are is we're we're middle class people that with money and means and time on our hands playing with really wonderful toys. And so, when I look at my life, which was devoted at least fifty percent of the time devoted to this sport and building it, and I think of it in that, you know, gosh, I just spent. 50% of my life developing toys for, you know, middle-class young men and, and a few young women to play in the, in the backcountry with, you know, what, what can I say to the world <laughs> that I've done? But there's more to it than that. But anyway, back to this. So we sat, sat in this thing and they're asking me all these questions. What do you think the sport's going to do? And where do you think we're going to go from here? And how can we make money? And, you know, they're all serious about that. And I said, well, I think I can remember it word for word because I said, right now, the sport is at the, it's at the highest it's going to be. I said, everybody is one, is at one. Every rider thinks that they're part of the sport. When we see the heroes, you know, the Tomax and the, and the Julie Furtados and stuff, all those heroes came from us. They came out of our womb and, and they rose to the top. So we believe we're part of it. And right now, the when you ride the trails, you're riding on a bicycle that looks like everybody else's. And when you go to the races, you're racing on the same, the same courses that the pros are riding. You know, sometimes in the same race. And, and I said, all of us, the manufacturers, the, you know, the car people that are in it, we're all like this one tribe. And I said, it, it can't last like that. Once it becomes institutionalized and starts this faction and split off, it, it'll collapse. So I said, what you're looking at right now is the, the most readership, the, bad, the largest and, and the most lucrative the sport is ever going to be. And the most freedom we have to, to express it is today. And I said, in 10 years, I said in five years, because I only thought I was going to have this job for five years. <laughs> And move on to something else. I said, in five years, you're gonna, we're going to have the same meeting. And you're going to tell me that I single-handedly destroyed your magazine and the sport and, and, and lost touch with the sport because it, it collapsed on itself. And they were all laughing at me like, ha, 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 you know, chuckling and stuff like that. And uh, within five years, that I, got, I started in Mountain Bike Action in 1993. And I remember sitting at Mammoth. At Mammoth Mountain, it was the Grundig, uh, elimi uh, the Reebok Eliminator, the Grundig World Cup, and a, a week's worth of amateur racing, all in the same courses and stuff. The national, it was the national downhill series was was there. Missy Giovi won it. Uh, Miles Rockwell won the the uh, Eliminator. I believe Jimmy Deaton won the downhill that year on a Yeti. It was phenomenal. I mean, bigger than it was bigger than if you can imagine the um, the joyride at Whistler, because they had helicopters. They had a helicopter from ESPN filming the race, the races up and down the hill. And in order to keep the television cameras from sitting there and, and having nothing to film to keep the races going fast, they had two helicopters 
landing at the start line and bringing the downhillers to the top of the mountain, shuttling with helicopters so that the televisions would be rolling all the time. And the tire, there, there's cross-country races mm-hmm. going on at the same time as the downhill. And the entire, everywhere you could see, was lined with cyclists and, and spectators. And there are cyclists hiding in the, the, in the shade of the trees on their bicycles watching the races. And, it's, and I w- was given a pocket of $20 bills, like $500 or $1,000 worth of $20 bills stuffed in my pocket. And, the ra- and I, was, I was feeding the announcers questions. And anybody that can answer the question come down and get a $20 bill. I was just handing out money. And I stood at the top of a balcony eating a hamburger. And I looked at this whole thing and I said, this is it. It's never going to get bigger and better than this. I mean, the pits had, it was Chevy, Jeep, Mercedes Benz. They had cars in the pits, giant tents. with, And everybody was teaming, you know, it's unlike racing in Europe where the pits are off limits. Mountain bike racing changed that. Now the pits were like places where they wanted people to come. And I looked at it and I said, this is it. This is as big as it's ever going to get. And in five years, it collapsed on itself. Cross country became boring. Free ride became the new, the new uh, where the soul of the sport shifted. It shifted out of racing and it shifted to free ride and kind of, lost its way for a little while until downhill became downhill bikes became downhill bikes that be, that started to grow powered by free ride and then later on when wh- people like whistler started including bicycles into um into you know their landscapes and stuff and gave us places to ride where we could actually express our our new te- our new our new found <laughs> our new uh skills there was this mm-hmm. like hole in the wall like oh gosh you know pro racing became eliminated like they decided they wanted pro racing to be separate from all of the amateur events and the the people stopped going to the races because they didn't feel like they were part of it anymore and it was prophetic I guess but if I was in that meeting it took a little bit longer it took about eight years and I was in that meeting and they were telling me that I'd lost my way. The sport was falling apart. I should pay more attention to the advertisers so that they could keep them in the book. And and I said, "This is. I told you this was going to mm-hmm. happen, you know." And but it was a fun ride. <laughs> things things changed a lot in the in the early in the mid two thousands. If we go back to like two thousand five, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. RC, you're at mountain bike action, but the internet, the internet is coming on strong. If we go back to that time, I'm, I'm really curious to know what your thoughts as the editor of mountain bike action at that time, what your thoughts of the internet were. Well, first, uh, I thought it was, I thought the internet was going to be idiotic because what I was looking at were, were, um, the first thing that caught my attention about the internet was, oh, People can now have their own opinions about editorialized stuff. And, you know, of course, I had this giant shield, this, this one and a half month shield that kept me isolated from the negativity of the, of the words that I used. And honestly, I ruffled a lot of feathers in my life. And that, that insulation allowed me to, to live a life of peace, as I would find out later. 
But I realized the internet was absolutely important. And I, and I pushed it. I started pushing it pretty hard to the sales staff and to my publisher. And my publisher believed that, that put posting URLs so that people could go online and see for themselves what these manufacturers were, were uh, saying. You know, like basically, if the magazine industry ruled for a while, but when the internet came, the industry started to realize that they could talk directly to their customers through the internet and bypass the magazines. And the timeliness was unbelievable. Like you could get race results online the day after the race, but you could get race results at Mountain Bike Action a month and a half later. Well, in a month and a half, there's another World Cup. <laughs> there's another free ride competition. There's something else to talk about that we're not going to be able to express yeah, too late. for another month and a half. And it, you know, it was obvious that we needed to jump into it. But, but Roland Hines, the publisher, insisted that the only way to get business and to connect with our advertisers and stuff was to call them on the phone and have our readers call them on the phone so they could say, I, hey, my name's Jeffrey Bloom, and I saw your, an ad in Mountain Bike Action and, a, and an article. I want to know more about that. Could you please call me back? You know, the moment the internet hit, nobody started answering their phone calls. And then when the smartphone came out in like what's 2008, I think, smartphone came out and people were connected to their smartphones with texts, that ended it. You could put a phone, a phone number in there, nobody would call it. And we couldn't put URLs, we were forbidden to put URLs and links. Uh, you know, to, to links so people could go online and, and get that information. And so in the middle of all this, while I'm trying to get a website, you know, get us to get a website, I get a call from Yahoo. Um, so people were the uh, Google, basically online providers. AOL was the big one at the time, you know, <laughs> something online. Anything starts with A online, but, but basically I got a, a call from, from a guy and he says, hey, you know, everybody over here reads, you know, we're a, we're we're a, a internet provider. They tell me the whole story. And says, Everybody over here reads Mountain Bike Action, and we'd like you guys to be our first, our primary web website for anybody that that goes on. And I said, oh, do we have to pay for this? And they said, no, we just like you guys, and we had to pick somebody to be the first official mountain bike landing page that we put on on a, on um, our, our site. And I said, okay. We don't have a good website, but if I take this information to my boss, maybe I can I can do it. And so, how much time? And he said, "Can you give us? We'll give you a month to do to figure this out." And I said, "Good, thanks a lot." So a month later, I call him up and I tell him, "Hey, I pitched it, and they don't want anything to do with it. I'm sorry, but and so I sent him over to Bike <laughs> to Bike Mag, and I said, "Those guys are on it." I said they're they're uh, <laughs> whoops <laughs> sorry Roland <laughs> I said they're on it they're they have their 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 vibe is really good they're, they're kind of like they're 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 on the the sports go in that direction so that's probably a better place to go and I sent them over there so if they didn't take the they may or may not have done it but I had an opportunity and I blew it and their their URL NB Action. 
they didn't want it. somebody else was squatting on mountainbikeaction.com and they didn't want to buy it for I think 5000 bucks <laughs> <laughs> looking back you know i think a url with your name on it would be oh. $500,000. I'm moving, hindsight. <laughs> I said, well, well, think of a URL that'll work. And I, so I, yeah. I invented MB Action. I said, just mbaction.com. It's it's almost, you know. So I, I, I wrote that up for him. And, but yeah, I, I knew we were we were doomed if we weren't going to be participating in the internet. And Roland Hines' son, Tom, who also worked for me, he pushed it hard enough and he still runs the, the web today their their website actually is informative now and and it has a great deal a good deal of content on it you know, it's still a magazine oriented website which is boring but but it's still it's a good one I, I check it out every once in a while and, and it's got oh yeah these guys are kicking ass so back to that that's my story yeah RC what what year did you leave mountain bike action and can I ask why uh, I mean, you were there for a long time. It was there was an internal struggle. Um, one of the things that that I kind of demanded out of the whole thing is that my my opinions didn't get edited out, you know, softened and stuff. And uh, I had a a run in with an advertiser, one of the one of their largest advertisers. Uh, we were told, and we live by this creed that editorial is separate from advertising, and I believe that should be true, but. You can't do that in a business. I mean, all of your money comes from, um, in a perfect world, 50% of the money in a publication comes from subscriptions and 50% comes from advertising so that you have a three-legged stool. You know, you're, the, you're not depending on one or the other if one gets soft. Mm-hmm. But in reality, the, the advertisers are the, in an in a enthusiast publication, you don't have a lot of subscribers. To answer your original question we started with, no, that you only have about. I think our total, our big biggest subscription uh, was about eighty thousand when I took the the reins of mountain bike action, and when I left, mm-hmm. I think it had dwindled down to thirty, maybe maybe twenty eight thousand because magazines were were tanking, beginning to tank by then because of the pressure from the internet and especially pink bike. Um, but the, the enthusiast publications are a really narrow band, like, you know, the Ferrari. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so, so I think 50,000 is, is, is good for an enthusiast publication. Yeah. And uh, so it wasn't that big. Like the first article I wrote for, for uh, Pink Bike yeah. was like 20,000 hits. And it was just like one of those stupid little tech articles we used to do. You know, like, hey, let me show you how to adjust a derailleur, you know. And, but that that was it. So when I left, what happened was I, um, it was about yeah. a buyer's guide, and my my crew, um, was just super hard working, especially with buyer's guide. And we were doing a winter buyer's guide with jackets and all that stuff. And the company that was complaining that they w- complained because we left them out, and I figured that, you know, that I was going to get supported because I had documents from the five times that we tried to capture, you know, these guys get their, get their uh, pictures and, and, and uh, prices and stuff. And we got blown off every time. So now I'm sitting in an office with everybody and, and there's uh, Mr. Mm-hmm. Mr. Accessory guy, Mr. Cheap accessory guy, it's old helmets and all sorts of stuff that was, you know, pretty well known in the bicycle industry, but you know, not that important to me. 
And uh, he was just saying, hey, man, you know, we're one of your strongest advertisers. We deserve to be in everything that you do. And I said, that's true, you do. I said, but we tried to get you in. And I said, we talked to, and he said, what about him? And he said, we talked to him. What about that guy? We talked to that guy. What about you? You weren't available. You never returned your call. He says, well, if you do it, you have to figure out how to get us in. And I said, we did try to get you in. And you didn't respond. And so you're out. And so the next day, I was out. <laughs> he demanded that I quit. That means I, got, I get fired. Yeah. Really? And he was a strong enough advertiser. And because uh, the, mag- the magazine... Wow, I had no yeah, idea. It was, it was a rough thing. I, I held the line. I defended my guys and girls. And... And I lost. I thought I thought that that everybody there had my back. I thought for sure if I, if I showed the evidence that we did our best to do it, and I said it's in order to be fair with all the other people, you know, when the deadline comes up and you don't do it, you're out. That's what I said. And the next day, I was out. And I and uh, they put um, Jimmy Mack, who was wow. who uh, started. He wanted to be the editor of Mountain Bike Action for a long time. But he did like road bike action, motocross journal, uh, not road bike action. I think he was doing some. He did a, he did a few publications there on his own that tanked pretty bad because really, you know, you need groundswell. A magazine can't just start and say, hey, we're going to talk about flowers. You really need a groundswell to, to start a magazine. And he never had that wave to surf. And he really wanted to be the editor of Mountain Bike Action. So there he was, smiling, Mr. Organized, super professional. There's me, Mr. Pirate, not quite organized, you know, the rule bender. And I and and their biggest advertiser had, had demanded that I go. So he got the job. He just got it the next day. And I figured I was going to quit. So I said, yeah, I'm out of here. And I got a call and they said, okay, you can be editor at large. This is Jody. He says, I didn't want you I, I chose you to be the editor of mountain bike action not him and he said and i still i'm still behind you he says i'm sorry that this happened he says what if i said you could be the editor at large you still get your salary you still get your column in front of the magazine you work part-time and you never get edited you whatever you write is you is what you write and i said well let's give it a try and so i was back in and a couple days later that's it was better. way. It was really cool. I built an airplane. I got. I rode. I rode horses. I had time to ride bicycles that that were outside work. You know, you think being an editor. I always make jokes about one eight hundred. Give me yes. free stuff. Yep. I think one of our readers talked about that, and I, I'll give you an apology for making that frivolous. But when we get free stuff, we don't go. Wow, that's really good. This is Christmas time again. We go. Oh no, I'm gonna have to write about this. Every single piece of it's work. of a yeah. componentry or a frame or a bicycle to us is work. So when I say one eight hundred free stuff, it's a joke because all of my peers know that there's nothing for free in this in this job. Occasionally, you get something that is, but most of the time, it, we look at it as like, do I really want to put this brand new pair of shoes on my feet and readjust my cleats and ride around with my pedals in the wrong place for a week? And like, well, it's my job. I get paid to do it. So here we go. You don't. <laughs> no, you don't. You want to ride your old shoes yeah. perfectly. Testing seat ah. saddles. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> seat saddle shoes. I'm good. <laughs> anyway. Hey, RC, 
We we should probably talk about some pink bike stuff, ah, eh? Yeah, why not? You joined pink bike in 2011, and I remember thinking to myself, "Holy fuck balls, we've hired RC." Like I was literally just some kid from Chilliwack who read all your magazines and then stumbled onto the internet and ended up with this job, and now we have Richard Cunningham and RC working for us. And I think that brought a big shift in mindset for us that we could cover this sport just as well or maybe even better than any magazine had. But I'm more interested in your mindset at the time coming into the onto the internet. What was going on in RC's mind? What were you thinking? <laughs> well, first of all, I left Mountain Bike Action because they started editing my work. They started putting things like Black Diamond, you know. Oof. You know, Oof. you didn't wait. Wait, 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 wait. Let's stop there. <laughs> you didn't invent Black Diamond, that no, phrase? No, I did not invent Black Diamond. <laughs> I, in fact, I had, I had missed the free ride movement. Okay, I just wanted to underline okay, that. I missed the free mountain bike action with me as at the helm. I, I was so land access oriented that I saw the the free ride movement as a bunch of people that were digging trails um, illegal in in the woods and and could be a problem for the sport. And also, I didn't really like the idea because I came from you know self powered stuff of. People that were just shuttling to the top and just and and basically plundering all the downhill trails in the area. And what I didn't realize at the time is, you know, just like just like uh, the sport, you know, editors have to evolve as well to to find out what where the soul of the sport is. And it was free ride, and that happened that same day that I was at Mammoth Mountain. The people that were watching the sport were on longer travel bikes. They had baggy shorts and a lot of them had flat pedals high-rise bars they didn't look like cross-country people and they were watching the races because they were still mountain bikers and when everything turned into spandex and the europeans took over the sport and turned it into short little courses running around and little spandex men that smelled like some sort of salve that they put on their on their little shaven legs and stuff they they weren't they weren't mountain bikers anymore and you know they're running up, running down hills, and and they were dumbing down the courses so that they could put them in the inner cities. And all these people that were where the soul had moved to trail riding and and more technical terrain stopped coming to the races. And those people were the ones that I should have followed because the soul of the sport had left competition and had moved to the forest. And that's where pink bike started. And the meeting I had mm-hmm. with Raddick <laughs> at Whistler, <laughs> he, he told me, what the hell am I doing wasting my time with print magazines? They're dead. And I thought, well, that's a great way to start a conversation. <laughs> Who is this butthole, you know? <laughs> that sounds exactly like Raddick. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I've been, people have treated me. We love you, Raddick. <laughs> Thanks for everything. We became friends that day. And uh, he t- it turned out he was right. So da- fast forward to 2010, uh, they were starting to put black diamond in my in my writing and, and taking out uh, take editing my work. And I complained about. It. I says no, you, that's the deal. You know, I you don't have to edit my work. I know more about the sport than anybody else here. And uh, 
they said, well, that's too bad, you know? If they, we want to edit your stuff, we will. And I, and I thought about, I said, well, give me 24 hours to think about it, but I think I'm out. And when I went home, I thought, I'm the sole provider of my house, you know? I need the money at this particular time. And I remember my father got in an argument about his patents at uh, Aerojet General at the time. The lead got all the patents. Depend, it didn't matter who invented the, the patent. The lead got his name on it. My dad said, I don't want the money. I want my name on the patents. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. And he walked. And he had five boys and a wife that stayed at home and mortgage and a lot more than I did. And he walked just on principle. And, and for a year, over a year, he didn't get a job. It, it's, you got blackballed in the industry. It was really tight tightly knit when something went wrong you couldn't get back in and people from our church used to leave presents for christmas and birthday parties and they would sneak up in the middle of the night and leave food and clothes and stuff and they people came there we don't we never knew who they were we just hear the cars drive away and i thought that was pretty courageous for my father to do that and that's where i got the courage to say screw you i'm out and so I was out. I didn't have any, another job to go. The magazine industries were tanking because of pressure from the websites. The jobs were scarce. I spent a year outside thinking about what I was going to do. And I worked to kind of clear my head with my neighbor as an industrial roofer, standing on the top of buildings and moving hot tar around. And, and it was a great you know, the manual labor, I didn't have to... Makes the internet look pretty good. Well, the thing is, I didn't have to think. I didn't have to think about deadlines. I just had to do the day's work and then eat Mexican food with my feet dangling over five-story buildings and watching the freeways. And it was just wonderful. And then uh, I saw on Pinkbike, because I was starting to, you know, starting to look at Pinkbike every day like everybody else. They own... We own... <laughs> Pinkbike owns Mondays. They probably waste probably a six million dollars of corporate time every year from people that go pretend that they're working and watch pink bike oh, on yeah. Mondays <laughs> work and i was one of them so i was watching pink bike. that's my goal and i saw that they they got like you know sterling lawrence you know was they they were they were hiring these these super famous photographers and i'm like what the hell so i call up pink bike just like i, I was angry i'm like how does a website you know, how does a website come up with enough money? Because basically banner sales were what people thought were going to bring websites money. And banner sales are like helpful. But you, you have to go much further. I mean, it, I think uh, cover the inside cover of, of Mountain Bike Action at the time was, what, uh, $70,000 or something like $50,000 to buy that cover? You know, it was oh. the, the advertising dollars. Holy yeah, shit. Twenty-five thousand dollars for a, a full page in the somewhere in the in the middle, and to buy the inside cover, which is the most that's that was like phenomenal, and you had to commit to doing it for like three to to six months. So when I saw Pinkbike, you know, hiring photographers that were better than most of the you know, they were the top photographers in the industry. These were the people that that were photographing for Bike Magazine, you know the which had become the most prominent mm -hmm. uh, magazine as far as, you know, who, who's in the know and, and who has the right look and who, who knows about the right beer and coffee. And that was bike, you know, they were there. Yeah. 
So they're hiring these guys. And so I call up and I'm almost angry. I'm like, I want to find out what the hell these guys are doing. So I call up Julian Coffey answers. And I said, what the hell are you guys doing hiring all these people? How are you going to pay for them? And he goes, well, Richard, we decided to editorialize Pink Bike, and we're going to take on the magazines and get their advertising money and, and make this into a real business. And I said, I said, that's pretty cool. He says, you want to be on board? And I said, hell yes. <laughs> and so the next day, just like mountain yes. bike action, I, I got calls from everybody and a, and a ticket to go up to, um, <laughs> up to, up to Vancouver, you know? So guess where I end up? We go around and we do a couple of articles and Carl's talking to me and says, well, Richard, uh, do you think you, you can do something like this and uh, put together a, a video for, uh, for Pink Bike and, you know, let's, let's give it a shot. So uh, we go down there and do a couple of tech videos and then we'll uh, come up here and see what happens. So, okay, Carl. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I do I remember. a video, what do we call them, Tech Tuesday? I do a couple of Tech Tuesday videos, the green screen, and I'm looking yep, at the thing. We were doing Tech Tuesday. And then uh, then I do a, a little tiny article, and he, he just wants to show me the power of pink bike. You know, it's like, well, Richard, I'll write up about, you know, a short article, and we'll publish it and see what happens, you know? So I go, okay, and I write an article, because, you know, this, I'm get it all done, you know? And he pushes it on pink bike, and he says, well, let, let's, let's post it and see what happens, you know? Uh, well, look at this. And, I'm, and I look, and within, like, 15 minutes there's like 1500 hits and i'm like oh my god this is like and then there's comments people are already hating me what the hell is he doing on there get go yeah. back to mountain bike That's action, great, isn't you it? old geezer you know so so uh, the final thing is the, is my interview and i'm like well this is going to be like a big interview with all the people at pink bike no we go to brett tippy's house and it's snowing it's like bad weather and stuff and everybody's putting on their knee pads and helmets and stuff like that. And somebody goes, Hey, you're going to get a big bike for RC. And I'm like, and uh, so Julian coffee goes, this is your interview RC. If these guys say you're okay, if this is behind the scenes, he said, these guys say you're okay, then you're on. Otherwise you're off. And I'm like, what? So we go to from and it's snowing and I'm, and, and Tippy gives me his like size, large, uh, uh, what we call an enduro bike now. It's a free ride bike. It's a single crown bike. And, and uh, one of the guys goes, why don't you give him a big bike? And he goes, he's a cross country guy. This is a big bike for him. So we go and we do like a, like a three, three or four hours on, a, on the North Shore. And the only thing that saved me was a couple of the routes I remember from way back in Allison side Orlando, you know, <laughs> at, at what, 10 minutes into this yeah. story. So I remember this one downhill going into to, uh, deep, to, is it deep cove? It's down by cove bikes. It's yep, steep as you can ride. Yeah. Not quite legal, muddy, greasy thing with snow around it. And I thought I can do this. I have crashed on this a couple of times. I already, I already know where we're going. Anyway, we had a good time. And at the end, we all were sitting around uh, the honey donut shop and uh, Julian goes, okay, guys, is, is he in or is he out? And they said I was in. And that was it. That was my interview. What do you miss about print? What I miss about print, and it's hard to explain, you have to commit to it. You have to sit down and go, I'm going to read this story. And right now, you can't just have a fluffy story. If you're going to sit down and read and give yourself the time to do it, 
that means you're going to have to not look at your phone. You're not going to have things come up and capture your attention. And, and you're not going to, you're just going to have to sit down and go through it. And so there's two things that, that I like about it. If it's done well, like uh, there used to be a magazine, it just went out of print. Uh, Cycle World, I believe, is a motorcycle magazine. And they do tech. And they'd have spectacular photos in there of, of like uh, pistons. And they talk about oil and, and piston rings and stuff. And they're topics that, that don't sell in the fast break world of the, of the internet. Uh, in the internet, it, it doesn't get, capture your attention and keep it. Like, if you look at my stories on, on Pinkbike, if you're scrolling through, before you get halfway up the screen, a new photograph is coming in the bottom. And I do that because I have to have something interesting yeah. to capture your attention or at least change your, your focus every half a screen. And I have to have yeah. something in there like a, what the hell am I saying? Or something like that. Because the, the internet and the iPhone has sliced up our, our uh, focus and our attention into little tiny one minute sound bites. So if I go into a magazine, I want to smell the magazine. I want to see text that's interesting to look at. I want to see photographs that capture my attention and say, why, is, why am I looking at this piston? And then when I read about it, they better tell me what's on that piston and why it's there. And if all those things are in there and it goes deep into a subject, like deep dive, I'm reading it at the pace. I'm, I'm looking at it at the pace that my understanding can handle. And the that experience is much more memorable. But like I said, it takes time. And the time it takes for me to read a magazine, which would shock you, I can read it, an entire magazine from front to back in about an hour. <laughs> but in the time it takes to read an article like that, I actually pause and think about it, you know? And and I felt like I've, I've gone somewhere. I've, I've been on a journey. So yeah, I still like print magazines, but they have to be pretty damn good. Uh, I like uh, uh, Peloton. My friend Brad Rowe left uh, High Torque Magazine. He worked for me for many years and founded Road Bike Action and then left to start his own. And when he did Peloton, he didn't forget that. When you read Peloton, you go to the place. You go to Belgium. You see the food and drink the wine. And then you see the cobbles up close and you see the racers and you hear the stories. And it's like, yeah, that's a good reason for print. But for everything else, digital media just kicks ass. So, RC, I've had a chance or two to consider moving to print over the years. And one of the biggest factors in me staying online was that lack of interaction that you don't get with people through a magazine. You, you put your work out there and you're going to get some emails or whatever back. But you don't get that instant feedback, that response and the conversation with the people. Online, I could write something, and within minutes, I have thousands of people calling me an idiot. And honestly, I love that sort of, not that specifically that interaction, but the interaction in general. Um, it sure looks like you've really taken to that as well, if, if I'm honest. Yeah, I, I was absolutely shocked. When I started with Pinkbike... I didn't realize how thick my armor was for being in print. But also, Pinkbike doesn't belong. This is the crazy part. I don't think there's anything like Pinkbike. And that's why I enjoyed working there is because how often you get a chance to start 
something that from the absolutely zero. I mean, there wasn't a successful media outlet that started as a membership and then became editorialized. So really, our membership is a completely different animal. They built Pink Bike. We don't own Pink Bike. You know, we we we're, we edit, we're the editorial yep. wing of this gigantic animal that is locked. They're on the ground. They're they're making history, and we're just right behind them on their heels, talking about the history that they're making. You know, and when we see something that maybe in the future or maybe yeah. crazy about the past or memorable, we can remind these people, like, hey, this is this is what we think you're doing or this is what we think you did it was totally awesome, you know? But but we have this unusual relationship and it never happened before. So Pink Bike was like, every day was new. Everything we did that was right was wonderful. Everything we did was wrong was like, well, let's never do that again, you know? But as far as the comment section goes, I'd never been connected. We heard about yeah, it. <laughs> and still do. I mean, I've never been connected to, directly to the people that I was writing to. And it's it was transformative. Yeah. And I think back to the my print days, how many times I was yeah. totally wrong that I would have known that I was going the wrong way 15 minutes after my articles hit. You know, you're talking to the people that you offended or the people that understand that that particular component really sucked because they've broken six of them. And just because you haven't broken one means you're a wimp, you know? I was, I was blown away. I loved it. I, I don't mind the hate. It hurts. The, the hateful stuff never, never stops hurting. It really does. Because you do your best and you make mistakes. And when you're doing your best and you find out that it was wrong... Yeah. It's just, it's crushing. You don't want to look at another comment, but you have to. You have to go down the line. And it's like those those uh, Northwest uh, Native Americans, you know, in order to speak to the elders, if you're from a different tribe, you had to walk through a line of braves and they would beat you until you got to the chief. They would just hammer on you and hit you and kick you all the way until you got to the chief. And then you could tell your story or make your apology. <laughs> felt like that sometimes but yeah yeah communicating directly with yeah. the people that i write to is is the reason that this that digital media is is so powerful and wonderful and the reason that what's funny is i can't hide behind that wall anymore but my readers can you know my readers all have aliases and stuff and they can they can snipe me from from any corner they want and do damage to me without me having access. I can't I can't fight that fight. If somebody has an opinion about my what I say, I have yeah. to respect that regardless of whether I, I believe in it or not. I have to leave it alone. Like they're not talking to me. They're talking to each other and me. I can't censor it. I can't I have a little red X. At the side of my screen, I have superpowers, you know, because I'm one of those guys. And I can make those people disappear with a push of a button. Good. Gone. You're not allowed to, though, RC. But I don't. And even if I was allowed to, nope. I wouldn't because, hey, Pink Bike is not mine. Pink Bike belongs to Pink Bike. All those people out there. And if they want to say something good or bad, they're saying it to, them, to, to their community, of which I'm a part. So I leave those red X's alone. Or see, earlier we talked about Jody and how he was 
a mentor for you. And I would say that you've definitely been a mentor for me over the last decade or so that you've been a pink bike. You've taught me some things there's no way that I would have learned. One of them is how to write a bike review to your friend. Can you can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think that's one of the single most important things that you've ever taught me. Yeah, that came from Jody as well. He said, it, if you want to write something, you don't write it as, you, as if you're broadcasting on the radio, you know, just sending some message out there. He says, write as if you're talking to your best friend. And he said, that way you won't bullshit around, you know, you won't use this fluffy language and stuff. You'll tell them exactly how it was. Like, the, hey, what do you think about the new blah, blah, blah with, you know, six, six, 600 millimeter blah, 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 blah. And you look at him and you go, I don't think it's a good bike. I rode it twice. I didn't want to ride it a third time, but I had to ride it for a week to write about it. Get something else, you know. And that's what you say to your friend because they're, you know, you got to speak to that person tomorrow and you have to justify the fact that you told them to buy the wrong bike. So yeah, that that was it. If you just yeah. write like you're talking to your to your best friend, you can't go wrong. And that was that was one of the things that that was a life changer for me too, you know. But yeah, he had a lot of those yeah. things. He said one time I got a letter that said I was the smartest guy in the universe and I showed it to him and he goes, Yeah, put that next to your computer, he says. Tomorrow you're going to get one that hate, a hate mail, and you're going to need that, you know, so you'll be able to write your next article. <laughs> you won't get depressed. <laughs> it's so true. He says, he says, he says, you're going to piss off if you're if you're doing your job. You're going to piss off half of the industry with every article. He says, they want to hear your opinions, and opinions are divisive. Yeah. He says, the trick is, next month, you got to piss off the other half. And I'm like. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Because I wanted to be all Mr. Nice Guy and have everybody... This sounds fun. <laughs> but really, it's true. You know, opinions are divisive. And if you if you put... People don't want to hear, hey, you know... Yeah. Yes, it's like when I, when I read, you know, saddles are a personal choice. It's like, then why are you writing about it? Just tell me whether it's rock hard or it's got a point in the front that bothers right. you when you're climbing... Just, just tell me what it does. I'll make that. I'll tell you whether I, it's it's personal choice or not. So, so the other part is, you know, if you have an opinion, state it. Yeah. Even if it's divisive, you know, you might be totally wrong. You'll you'll find that out in ten seconds on Pink Bike. But if you're right, or you're right in the future, somebody look back and go, hey, you know, if, if he was right back then and everybody hated him, maybe what RC's saying today that I hate might be worth a second thought. So if you're honest and you, and you speak like you're talking to your best friend and you put your opinions out strong enough so that you're not Mr. Fluffhead, you're doing everybody a favor. Even if they don't like what you said, they can turn the page and go somewhere else. Yeah. You know, you're not wasting their time. RC, speaking about opinions, this is probably a good time to bring up a recent Facebook post of yours about e-bikes. Now, one thing that I admire here is that we're kind of in a time when when you're I feel like you're supposed to say that everything is okay. Like that's okay to do that or use this, do whatever you want. And I read this Facebook post of yours, decidedly anti-e-bike, and you are not sitting on a fence here. Could you sort of summarize what you said in your post <laughs> for me? Well, it's pretty simple. I 
I've already made my, you know, if you if you followed my writing, I've already made my my uh, stand on e-bikes. I think we're overreaching. We're, you know, when you, it's winner, winner, chicken dinner. You know, when you when you win every battle, it's easy to think that you can win everything. And I I believe e-bikes have their place, and we've already made those decisions as as an industry. You know, it's it's under it's well underway all those decisions been made right or wrong but for me you know i have pressure from my friends some very very close friends are absolutely on the e-bike program and and i was getting a lot of negativity like hey you know is this going to divide our friendship or you ever going to ride with me again so basically i said you know you make your own choices e-bikes are legal so my opinion right now is is my own, but the reason I made it, and I don't believe the e-bikes are good, and I don't choose to ride them, is because I was on the ground floor when mountain bikes weren't going to be allowed, at least in this country, on any trail that off-road motorized vehicles were not allowed to be on. And I knew, because I used to be a motorcyclist, and I watched us as motorcyclists destroy so much of the environment that we got thrown out of pretty much, you know, 75% of the federal lands and the state lands and park lands that we were able to ride before because we didn't take care of that stuff. And I, and I know what land access means to an off-road sport. No access, no sport. I mean, if you think about trail forks and what Raddick did with that and ex- what trail forks basically is, we ensure that there's trails to ride and therefore we'll have a sport. That's why that's why it exists. And I believe that. And I knew going in that there's going to be a big conflict. And so I was prepared for it. And I devoted a lot of time. I established rides. And when I established rides, everybody I took on it, I explained what the rules were. We have to get along with all the other users because basically we built the sport on the backs of other users. We took their trails as our own. And now we're producing trails that they don't need. You know, with dogs and hikers and horses, all those people, they don't need berms and jumps and features. We do. And that's what our trails are. So we don't, we're not giving back anything. And now, so when I was doing the, all that stuff, I went to meetings after meetings and the entire access issue hinged on the fact that we were human powered. And therefore, we belonged with kayakers and hikers and horses, even though horses aren't human-powered, on the same trails because we were human-powered and we weren't a mechanical contrivance. And we kind of ran that down everybody's throat. And in the end, it was a compromise. The wilderness hiking communities and equestrian communities didn't want us there, but the argument held and we won. But it was tentative. And so it's easy to forget. You know, it's just like it's easy to forget that Native Americans were given sovereign rights to their land. And now we're putting pipelines through them, you know. Oh, well, they don't need that land. We made those deals a long time ago and somebody else signed that paper. Well, a long time ago, I signed that paper. And I thought I was representing the entire industry because we needed it. We needed land access. We needed trail access. So when we when we made that compromise, I was pretty happy. I knew that we the sport was insured. And today, the industry reneged on that compromise. They said, well, you know, it's really hard to ride uphill, so we need motors. 
And that's exactly what they told me was going to happen. And, it's, and so I'm honoring those people. I'm honoring the decision I made and the work that we did together on both sides of the table. Because when you make a compromise, the best compromise is everybody walks away thinking they could have done better. But it's an even Steven compromise across the board. And that's exactly what happened. So we should stick with it. Put motors on the motor trails and pedal bicycles in the areas that are non-motorized. And that's what I believe in. And I want to honor that decision. But if it's legal for you to ride e-bikes on all those trails, then it's your decision. It's legal. It's not wrong, technically. And that's where I stand. Yeah. And I believe it's too late to change it. So we're going to have to roll through and see what the, what the ramifications are in the, at the end of this whole story. I have my own ideas how it's going to end. <laughs> I can tell you that later. But as far as I go, it's a personal choice. It's not going to get in, in the way of my friendships. I can ride side by side with people on e-bikes on trails. I'm not going to go, I hate that guy. You know, it is what it is. I mean, forgiveness is, is, is as much a part of... It's a bigger picture thing for you. It isn't? really is. It's, it's, I'm looking down the road to, to see where it goes from here. And I have a pretty good idea what's going to happen. Not pretty, but the faster we arrive at that conclusion, the better it is. And right now we're in the honeymoon phase. There's not enough e-bikes in the world on trails to make a difference. But when it hits saturation, there's no turning back. Those decisions will be made and they'll be made quickly. So we'll see how it goes. That's a, that's a pretty serious subject, but I want to turn back the clock to something a little less serious, RC. And I want to talk about something... You've mentioned them in the past to me, and I want to hear these stories. If I say the phrase, dollar downhills, <laughs> what comes to mind? All right, let's get on the Wayback Machine, or something I'm pretty good at these days. Uh, before Enduro, uh, and, and when downhill was yep. pretty stuffy, you know, it was getting so technical, people were basically, it was as fast as you could get to, to the 150-foot doubles or whatever, you know. I thought, you know... Downhill bikes are pretty cool, but unless you use them for to their full potential, then they're kind of a waste. They're just a you know, gigantic, heavy, long-travel motorcycle without a motorcycle engine. So I thought, why not use downhill bikes as like the safety factors? So no pre-run downhill races, mass start. Okay, we already know the Frenchies do that right now. In fact, we, we, the results just came in for one of the big ones. But, but this was like, you know, kind of gorilla type stuff. So I got this idea about doing gorilla downhills, mass start, no pre-run. So I'd go up there and I'd mark the courses all by myself. And I, I picked long courses. I think the first dollar downhill was, uh, was 36 minutes to win. So it's a big course. And we have good mountains by my house. You know, you have to have mountains wow. to do this. So, or See, that's an enduro race, yeah, you know. <laughs> well, well, this is before enduros. But I was thinking, you know, this was, this was like bringing it back to the reality, bringing it to the adventure. Because, you know, if it isn't an adventure, then, you know, you're not living your life right, right? So I figured it's going to be hard enough. The courses didn't have to be that difficult because nobody knew where they were. And nobody knew where the features were or anything like that. So you need a downhill bike to do this. And it turned out you did. The first one I took a, a short travel dual suspension bike on, almost killed myself, just just pre-running the course. So anyway, I get everything marked. But then 
they weren't really legit races. I didn't have permits for them, and they were on public land. So what I did is I we'd all meet at like a McDonald's restaurant, and I'd get everybody suited up before. So they had to be totally suited up. I didn't have those people that turned on their favorite, you know, death metal with their with their uh, Toyota pickup doors wide open and they're prancing around in their socks and they're slowly getting their kit on for like a half an hour. I couldn't have that out there because it would flag that we were having an event and there'd be tons of trucks up there. So we all got loaded up in like four trucks, all with our helmets, everything ready, loaded up, drove up to the start line and got there. And then we had a, a quick uh, meeting and I wanted to establish a way to get everybody started. So we lined up our bikes in the starting line and we had the riders meeting. I said, sometime in this riders meeting, I'm going to say go. And that's the beginning of the race. So I'd start talking about the course and where the places were and I'd say go and I'd continue <laughs> on with my thing saying, watch out for this. And a couple of people would be like sneaking over there, little, you know, really quietly around the side. They'd grab on their bikes and just haul ass because they heard go, right? So that was that was the the, the randomizer. Yeah. But then everybody would be falling over each other to get on their bikes. But the greatest part about these races is that being in first place wasn't really that good because you had to make all the decisions for the people behind you. So people would run off the course or they'd fall on something and the, and the lead changes over and over again. So I think Mark Jordan, uh, he was working at, at Marzocchi at the time, he won the first one. So there was, I put on seven and... Two of them were at night. Oh. The, the, everybody complained about the first one because it wasn't steep enough. So the second one, there's a hill that just looks like a, the kind of hill that ch children draw. that looks like Mount Fuji, only without the little fish mouth on the top. And there's a little tiny uh, missile station at the very top. And you could see the cars at 45 degrees at the bottom of the hill. And it was like three miles to get there. <laughs> and you could see the cars... Like you, like you could throw a rock on the top. But it was pretty steep. And I think Tom Rogers may have won that one. Anyway, that was super steep. A lot of crashes and a lot of high-speed stuff. People would get off course and they would go so far down the mountain that they had to... It took them longer to walk back up than the race actually transpired. But anyway, I, I thought that was pretty cool. So let's do them at night. And as a as a bike tester, you save mountains of these like flashing lights and reflectors that come in all the bike kits because, you know, you don't want to photograph anything that looked legal. So I had all these reflectors and I drilled holes in them and I would like nail them or screw them onto trees or put them on little sticks. So as long as you were looking at yellow reflectors or red reflectors down the course, you could, you could follow them. But then if there's a line of yellow, that meant it was a, it was a feature that you could jump. If there's a line of red, it meant that was a feature that you should really worry about. And that was it. So there's enough flashing lights. So if somebody lost their battery, they could find their way down the mountain. And it's remarkable because I did three of those and no one got hurt. And they were amazing. So my course workers at the time, I, I, I got two guys. Hey, lucky. Yeah. No, it was, it was pretty good. So they cost a dollar and the the number, your number plate was a piece of masking tape wrapped around your handlebar with a number on them. And when you got down to the bottom, I had either myself or one of my coworkers, I had two guys that helped me out with these. And they would write down the whole things and whoever won, won, and they got all the money. So if there was 20 riders, you got 20 bucks and that was it. I think the Toonie races in, the, in BC are the same way. 
it was pretty exciting. So after a while, we were getting good crowds. Yeah. And my guys said, yeah. we're going to do one for you. So they did a night race for me. And I got to actually race one. And it was loony. Because when you have lights on your bike and you go over a jump, the world disappears. And so the lights come back to earth. So you're just like... Yeah. And then the lights are gone. They're just in space. And then... It was really cool. It was like... So... I figured it was time to end them because nobody got hurt after a whole bunch and ended it. But the guys that, that raced it went back and they, they duplicated it here and there. They were doing similar races up at Big Bear for a while and by the ski areas and stuff. And it, it was, people still talk about them. The guys that raced them still talk about them to this day. Times, times have changed a little bit. I don't think you should be doing that today, though. Well, you know, when you're a pioneer, you do things that are on the edge of, of the laws because in order to right. be a pioneer, you have to break the rules. But the first thing that happens when the you know industry comes in or bankers and restaurateurs and stuff and establish the towns where you put the camps and build all the roads and stuff, the first thing that, that all the, the, the new people do is throw out the pioneers because they're too coarse. And they're, we don't need mavericks in this town. They're troublemakers. And so you get thrown out. So that's how it goes. Yeah. You got to stop sooner or later. <laughs> RC, do you want to, should we get to some reader questions and Hell comments? Hell yeah. All right. So our first one, this is from pig bike user SNL1200. This is a comment, RC. Uh, he says, the man is up there on the list of the most interesting. One thing he loves about you, RC, he says, is your apparent fearlessness of failure or perhaps fear, but ability to take chances on something going catastrophically wrong anyways. He says, I think a lot of young people are missing that in the era of clout, super cool Instagram bangers, entrance interviews for preschool, those sorts of things. Doing things for the sake of doing them, regardless of how they look or turn out, seems to be a bit of a dying art. And with it, he says, will go the creativity and innovation. What, what would you say to Pink Bike user SNL1200 about that? <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks, but it, it is true. Like, you. This isn't your life. Isn't a dress rehearsal. I mean, we we start our lives thinking that we're going to do everything wrong because you know we're matching ourselves with all of our friends. But really, nobody nobody learns without failure. I think Mr. Honda, the guy, uh, I think his name is he's not Ichiro Honda. Well, anyway, the man who founded Honda Motors yeah. wrote on the on his factory he had when he first started out that we learn more much more through our failures than our successes. And that's true. When we succeed, we think it's us, you know, we did it. When we fail, we look for the reasons. But I was really timid when I when I was little. I, I didn't really want to try anything big and all that stuff. And and when I finally got angry enough, I I, I guess this, nobody knows this, but I was, had a really bad asthma when when I was growing up. And a lot, of, a lot of the things that people did, I just couldn't do. I was just in bed, you know, trying to just breathe like people with covid so bronchial asthma finally disappeared and when i when it disappeared i had this this wow i want to do things you know and so i was racing i started racing motorcycles at the time and i remember i was really bad in the corners i was just like oh and so i spent like a day falling in the corners going as fast as i could until i just crashed and until i got so until i realized where the limits were and, and they weren't that far away the limits between being really good and being average is just fear. It's like, wow, you know, 
and it's like a, you know, I'm I'm really careful with getting uh, air these days because I don't want to lose a year of my life healing. But it was the same on a motorcycle. I was jumping on a motorcycle, I was like, "What the hell?" And well, let's see how far can you go. And I realized when you're in the air, you don't have arm pump. You can actually take your hands off the handlebars for a second and shake them and put them back down. So I looked. I started looking forward to the jumps because it gave me a break from the crappy suspension we had back in the 70s and early 80s. So anyway, but to to take the, the big risk is like, it's not bad. To take a big risk needlessly, you know, when when you see that you can get hurt and you have no reason to do it, I don't think so. But when you're when you're learning, you should go all the way to the extreme to find out where the boundaries are and then back off to where it's kind of safe to learn. And I did that when I was building frames once. I didn't know where the geometry should be, and I wanted the bicycles to corner well, so I spent a year on flat pedals designing bikes and going so fast on the fire road turns that I would just slide all the crash and slide all the way up and get stopped by the berms before I went off the edge. And I found out where the barriers were and what the, what the steering should be. And then when I went back, you know, I never rode flat pedals again, but I did it because I thought, well, where is it? And I've done that with jobs and stuff. And, and I found that, if, yeah, sometimes I absolutely fail and wish I'd never done that again. Like thinking I could ski on my on my Chuck Taylors that were all worn out. And I jumped off the back of a motorcycle thinking I'd slide all the way up to my friends and stop in front of them and, you know, da-da. And it took weeks for to be able to sleep in a bed for all the <laughs> for all the yeah. the blood, all the road but rash. Yeah, it's, it, the way that you learn is to go beyond that one point, just far enough to to know where the boundaries are, and then scale back a little bit, go to the next one. And I, I think when I look back at the the moments in my life that I that I I wish I'd done differently. It was the moments I should have said yes when things were uncertain and the moments I should have said no are few and far between. It's usually the ones, the opportunities that I walked away from because I didn't think it was possible. Like not being a businessman, not learning how to be a businessman and continuing to build frames. Who knows? You know, who knows where that path could have taken me? We might have been closer to... Mm -hmm you know, to, to where we were trying to get. So take the risk, see what's on the other side. That actually brings me to my next question. This one's from Tade639RC. He wants to know, do you regret not having faith in yourself to make Mantis compete with possibly with some of the large companies today or make Mantis what it could have been successful? What, do you, what would you say to that? Yes, I think about it. I think about it quite often. Like, what could have been, but like I said, it it was a huge leap to come into to writing, and who knows? I mean, I may have I may have failed, I may have succeeded, but bicycles right now are just spectacularly good. So when I look back, I guess I wasn't needed to bring bicycles to this point, and opinions about where we should go or what we might do next and stuff. Well, there's still a lot of unanswered questions that I might be able to participate in or at least tell stories about the left and right turns that I took that 
were good and bad for for us and for myself as well. So there's, I learned a new, I learned something new, a, a skill that I never believe. If you told me it, that I was going to be a writer, and and be telling stories like this, I would say no, no effing way. I would be, you know, somewhere in a factory machining the next helicopter rotor or something like that. But this is how it became, and, it, and it's pretty pretty wonderful, pretty wonderful way to, to live your life. All right. Our next question is from S. Scott. He wants to know, RC, if you were to design a bike of any kind, gravel, mountain bike, road, tandem, whatever, from scratch today, what type of bike would it be? Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, First of all, I've already complained that bicycles cost too much. And once the industry stabilizes and we know what a bicycle should be, which is where we are, and why not figure out a way that we can make that better, you know, more, more ecologically or, you know, energy efficient or whatever. And I, so imagine, do, 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 imagine that you have electric power in Washington state, hydraulic wet electric power. And it's really cheap at night because nobody uses it. Do, 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 do. And you've got German engineers off in Stuttgart somewhere who are so workaholics that they want to make the perfect aluminum bike that nobody else can beat. Dun, 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 dun. And you have new technology right around the corner that allows you to do things that were never done before. Do, 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 do. Additive manufacturing. Yeah, we've heard a lot about that crap, but real additive manufacturing. So you can develop aluminum alloys that have that can't be welded and they have little tiny crystals in them and make them super strong. Do, 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 do. How do you put that together? Well, you have a manufacturing facility in Washington State where only five or six people work, and it's huge, and it uses lots of electricity, and it makes all your frames and stuff with additive manufacturing. And just like carbon fiber, it makes thin where it has to be thin. It puts all the pivots in where they need to be pivots, and all that stuff is done without any lights because it's done by robots. And so then you have these guys in Germany, and they they figure out exactly how these each size should be and they do all their stuff and we've done all the testing and the frames are perfect and all of a sudden you realize that you need 55 more percent more tiny frames or 25 percent more large frames well you can change that on the computer in Stuttgart or maybe your business people are in Santa Cruz California so you can put together a bicycle manufacturing plant where it makes sense to have all the components and you can build them with a with a substance that can be powder or you know paste or whatever that can be transported easily to the location without having a large volume of of um without containers everywhere and you can actually manufacture these bicycles in the countries where they're going to be sold you can manufacture frames in Germany if you if you sell more in Germany you can manufacture them in the United States or Canada because the frames are being built primarily by robots. So that would be my dream if I was going to build a modern, uh, say, $5,000 dual suspension trail bike. And I would actually look at manufacturing, actually assembling these frames on the location as well. So we didn't have all the cardboard and all that stuff. We'd actually be able to ship the bicycles from the areas where they're being made, maybe in trucks that fully assembled. Or so they didn't have boxes lying around and all that stuff. But as far as what would interest me most, 
is the cheap bike. I mean, forget about mountain bikes. Mountain bikes are basically toys to entertain people in the, in the mountains and get us places we'd probably never go if we had to walk because, you know, you have to walk back. You can coast back on a bicycle. But what about the bike? You know, the bicycle that everybody needs in developing nations and in modern nations to get from A to B. Why not build a bicycle in a factory that has no employees whatsoever? That rubber comes, rubber and aluminum and steel and maybe ball bearings come in one section. And the bicycle is designed to last for 30, 40 years. And each part is manufactured specifically so a robot can assemble it. And when it comes out, we have a one-speed, super durable bicycle that can be repaired by taking parts from similar bicycles and just, you know, taking dead bicycles and making live bicycles out of them. Or just easy stuff. Uh, airless tire. Something that can be used as a burden bicycle in, in North Africa or South Africa. Uh, Chinese bicycle to get back and forth to work. Um, Starbucks bicycle in developing nations that actually lasts long enough so that you can hand it down generation to generation like those old Schwinns that had frames that could not never be burned or, or broken that still are being rebuilt by, by people in shops today. Mm-hmm. That, I think, would be the contribution of the bicycle industry and somebody like me who has already done all the other stuff. You know, what could I do right now to change the world? And I think building a bicycle factory like that and taking on a challenge that big That's something I could throw my soul into right now. RC, we're going to wrap this up with one last question. This is from PB user Farty Marty. He's been around forever. He's asking lots of great questions. I feel like this is a good one to end the podcast on. He says, why mountain bikes? He says, I love them, but try explaining it to someone who doesn't get them. You ride around in the woods, down steep ass trails, falling off. You're coming home covered in blood, and then you go out and do it all again it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to people who don't do it, but it's fun as hell. So, RC, why mountain bikes? Well, first of all, I've done a lot of sports, action sports and stuff, and I've never gotten tired of, of mountain biking. And there's a reason for it. But I, I'm going to quote somebody else. Ian Ritz, the guy that behind Cro-Mag Bicycle, said it better than I can possibly say it. And he said, a bicycle, especially a mountain bicycle, gives you superpowers. You can go a hundred times faster than you could on foot. You can fly. You can. It, it's just. The, it, it just allows you to do ma- amazing things. It truly gives you superpowers. And there's really nothing else that you can just attach to your body that can that can do that. And I think that's why mountain bikes. Are, are so they exist i think that's the only reason they exist because when you go out you're out in the middle of the country or maybe you're in a vacant lot or something but you're away from all the things that society all the confines of society and you're by yourself and you're on this machine and now you've got superpowers you know even if it's a bike park or on a trail you're just zooming across the desert or you're falling you know rolling down rocks you can never do that as a human and here you are doing it every single day and it gets better the, the more skilled you are and the more courage you have it, even, it just gets better every single day that's it 
All right, everybody, I feel like that's a good place to end this podcast. If you've got questions for RC, comments for RC, put them down below in the comment section and RC is going to get in there and answer a whole bunch of them. And of course, RC, we're going to have you back for a whole bunch of other podcasts in the future. So everybody stay tuned for that. And we hope you enjoyed episode 71. Make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. RC, I think I'm going to go out and go for a ride. Find that feeling you talk about. We'll see you, everybody, next week.